1 Timothy today, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we continue our study in verse 1 Timothy. Today we'll conclude chapter 1. Last week we started with the first 11 verses. Turn me down just a little bit there, Cam. Uh, first 11 verses, and uh, so today we'll finish out verses 12 through 20. Uh, we looked at and considered the loss of truth and how that hurts us. We looked at the importance of God's Word and how it helps us. And today we're going to look at two more thoughts to consider. Uh, the love of Christ, which will take most of our time, and then the importance of living a life of faith. Remember, we're looking at an effective church. How can we be an effective church according to God's Word? And, uh, and obviously, having truth is crucial. Now, we've got to not only have but proclaim truth and uh, not allow in false teaching, uh, anti-biblical teaching. And, uh, and then today we're going to see just how the love of Christ is uh, shown through a couple of different areas and then follow that with the, uh, how, uh, the importance of a life of faith uh, in the last couple verses. Let's read starting in verse number 12. Uh, this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained a mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering with a pattern of them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on, before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which uh, some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." Uh, there's some good stuff in this passage, and I'm looking forward to presenting it this morning. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. God, we do thank you for letting us be here, and we thank you for your word that is given to us to help us, to grow us, to mature us, uh, Lord, to instruct us to be what you want us to be. And I pray this morning as we look at your word, we'll continue to uh, not only have a desire to be an effective church, but learn how to be an effective church. And so, Lord, guide us through your word. Help me as I present this today that I would do it clearly and correctly. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, here we continue through 1 Timothy. And remember, the, the idea of this is a letter from Paul to Timothy, uh, a mentor uh, to a young preacher, and uh, instructing and guiding, encouraging, uh, challenging. There's all kinds of things in this book. And ultimately for us, Christ giving us this through inspiration, uh, teaching us of what we can do and how we can do things to be an effective church. And again, all of it starts with the relationship with Christ. Without that, uh, we are nothing. Uh, without God honoring, God following, God serving people, um, us being those things, well, our church is going to be ineffective uh, and that is the most important thing for sure. But today I want us to see some things that we see in these couple verses and that I think can help us and encourage us, remind us maybe of some things today as well. And we see the love of Christ is the first point today. And we're going to look at uh, some different ways it is uh, shown through, uh, through Paul um, and could, can be shown through by us as well. Uh, when we think of the church, what the church is supposed to represent. Now, the, the purpose of the church, uh, I believe, is ultimately to build up believers, to edify, to train, to teach believers. Um, it is there to encourage, to challenge, all those sorts of things. And again, to train, to teach, so that we know how to go out into the world and preach the gospel to every creature and, and, and do that effectively, fulfill the Great Commission. 
I believe the church should evangelize, but I believe the primary purpose of the church is to teach people how to evangelize. Um, we, we keep expecting lost people just to come in <laughs> and hear, hear a message and get saved. That's not how it typically works. It can work, and it, and it has worked, and it, and it will work, but the, the way that God gives it to us is we're supposed to go out and, and find the lost, share the gospel with them, and then bring them into the church. Um, if you look in Acts and you look at the early church, you see the, uh, the people were being saved and added to the church daily. Um, it doesn't go the other way around where the lost come into the church and then get saved and then are added to the church. Typically, again, not always, but typically, the Christian has to go out, find the lost, share the gospel, and bring them in to the church. And so the church, in order to be effective, has to represent uh, and look like what it's supposed to look like. And by that, I don't even mean uh, with standards, because I think the, the, the Bible is open enough that there are some variety of standards that can be allowed by God, accepted by God within the church. We're not here to talk about standards today, but um, I, I don't think that every church has to do it the way that we do it in order for them to be effective and honoring to God. That being said, we do the things that we do at our church because we've prayed about it and we believe it's what God wants us to do and that's why we do it. And anytime someone has ever asked us to do something different and we've prayed about it and don't feel like God's given us the the freedom to do it, then we don't do it. And sometimes that makes people happy and sometimes it makes people mad. And at the end of the day, I've learned I don't care. As long as I'm doing what I think God wants me to do, if someone's mad at me, then so be it. Uh, But that being said, uh, uh, we look at the Bible and, and, and what we're supposed to as a church look like. What we're supposed to as a church represent, and I believe it to be at its fullest, we're supposed to represent the love of Christ. Everything that we do as a church, and when the community looks at our church, they're supposed to see the love of Christ. Now, will they accept it? Not always, and oftentimes not at all, but that's what we're supposed to represent. And we see here Paul uh, being an example to us here of showing the love of Christ. He starts out by showing gratitude uh, to God. And I think that when we understand the love of Christ, it makes us grateful. When we understand what Christ has done for us and how much he loves us, it makes us thankful. And Paul here in verse number 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He talks about his present life situation, and he's thankful for the situation that God has placed him in. In this case, for Paul, it is that God enabled him and uh, equipped him, so to say, and put him into the ministry. Um, and, and that is something that, that, again, I grew up always hearing, uh, you know, they didn't say it this way. Uh, so don't get me wrong, uh, they didn't say it this way, but it felt this way sitting in, in the pew, uh, that all the people in ministry are special. If God found you important enough and good enough and faithful enough and Christian enough and talented enough to put you in the ministry, be thankful because you're special. Um, the older I've gotten... Uh, the more I realize that the people in ministry, they're special indeed, but a different kind of special. Um, they, they are, uh, uh, they've got some quirks about them. Uh, I'm speaking about myself as well. Uh, uh, they're the special that mom says, you're special. Uh, that kind of special. I mean, I'm kidding, of course, to a degree. But what I've learned the older I've gotten is, uh, first of all, I'm thankful to be in the ministry Uh, I love preaching. I love pastoring. It's not something that I had a desire to do for most of my life, uh, but I love it now. I I very rarely get opportunities to preach outside of our church and other churches, other places, but when I do, it's an incredible honor, and I love to do it. And I'm thankful for what God has allowed me to do uh, in having me in ministry. That being said, I have learned that I am no more unique and no more special than any other person out there. And that the importance, especially as a pastor, I've learned this, the importance of Christians coming to church and serving in the church and fulfilling the church and being a part of this body that makes up, being pieces that make up the body and how important and crucial it is. It's not to say that we should all say, well, if I didn't get put in the ministry, if God didn't call me into the ministry, well, then I should look down on myself because obviously God looks down on me. No, what it should teach us is that wherever God has placed us, We should be thankful for it. 
We should be thankful for it. Now, Paul, in his case, was in ministry, so he was thankful for that. Uh, but we should look at the love of Christ in our life and the places that God has placed us in, whether that be home, whether that be work, whether that be church, wherever it is. The places that God has put us in, we should be thankful for the place that God has put us in. And Paul here says, I am thankful that God has equipped me, he's enabled me, and he's counted me faithful, and he's put me into the ministry. You should be thankful that God has enabled you and equipped you for the place that God has placed you. We should always be thankful for that. And now listen, there are things that I look at in my life, and I admit it's harder to be thankful for than other things. I, I have to remind myself that I'm thankful for the income that I get through my uh, secular job. Because I don't love killing bugs. Uh, it's not a passion of mine. It's not a desire that I have. I didn't wake up one day and say, I want to be a bug assass uh, assassin. Like, that's what I want to do. Um, no, I, I, I never thought that. Um, but I am thankful when I look, and I can look at the broad scope of things, and think, man, I'm thankful for the job that God's allowed me to have. And I'm thankful that he's given me the ability to do that job so that I can have the income that I need. And, and it's good, and it's, and, and it's helpful, and it's, man, I'll tell you what, it's a blessing when I step back and look at it. In the middle of it, I think, why? <laughs> but, but if I step back and look, I realize, no, this is good. God's placed me here, and he's allowed me to share the gospel with people that I would have never met otherwise. He's allowed me to befriend people that I would have never met otherwise. He's allowed me to get to know a community that would have been harder to get to know without the, the, the job that I had. All those sorts of things. Whatever God has placed you, be thankful for it. It's the love of Christ that puts you there. So be grateful for it. Not only in what's going on now, but look at the past. Paul here says in verse number 13, uh, he says, Who, speaking of himself, was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. He says, my past was not one that would make sense to the outside world that would, say, that would make sense for God to place him where God placed him. He looks at his past and he just realizes, my goodness, I've come a long way. Uh, he was a blasphemer against God. He was violent. He was uh, ignorant, we'll look at in a moment. He was a sinner. At the end of the day, that's, that's what he was. And he looks at his past and he, he says, my goodness, where God has brought me from, I'm so thankful for the love of Christ that brought me out of that and into where I am now. And if you look at your past, you can see, I would assume, the same thing. Now, some of you, like me, uh, didn't live a, uh, a, a, what most people would consider this wicked past. Right? I was fortunate. I grew up in the Christian parents and good churches and uh, a good, good situation. Uh, I mean, I sinned just like anybody else. But when, when, when I'm talking with coworkers and I talk about the bad things that I did in college versus the things that they did in college, it's drastically different. Right? Like the bad things I did in college is I went to the movies. And they look at me and go, what? What? That's not, that's not bad. And I agree with them now, depending on what movie you're going to. But anyways. Uh, uh, and and they, they just look and they're like, Wait, huh? I don't talk a whole lot about that kind of stuff because I know they don't get it. Uh, but they're talking about the, the things that they did in college. Um, and, uh, and, and we would all agree, yeah, that's not good. Um, but you know what? God can save them out of that. Now, I needed to be saved out of my sins. I needed to be saved out of the wickedness, even as a young child, that I had in my heart and in my mind. And after I got saved, I needed to be continually loved by Christ enough to forgive me of sins that I would commit after I was saved. And uh, to be able to bring me out of the um, immaturity and out of the bad decisions and out of the pridefulness and out of all these things that you have growing up, and I think it's different battles to a degree from people who grew up, I would call it the Christian bubble, people who grew up in the Christian bubble, Christian school, Christian home, church, all that kind of stuff, they still sin, and their heart is just as wicked as anybody else, um, but uh, I think sometimes it's harder for them to see their need uh, to be forgiven and brought out of that than it is for people who grow up in drugs and alcohol and uh, just immorality and all these other things as well. I, I think it's easy for them to be able to look at their life and go, this is obviously wrong, I shouldn't be doing this. Whereas you got kids that grow up in a Christian home and they think, well, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm not doing what they're doing. <sighs> yeah, but your heart's just wicked. And, uh, and the need for that. And if we look at, honestly in our life, we can look back and say, my goodness, the love of Christ has brought me out of 
things and into the love of Christ and how wonderful that is if we look at our past and where we are now. He goes on in verse 13 and he says, But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Uh, He was forgiven. Uh, I think we have to be careful with this phrasing because of the way that people talk today. Um, I understand it. I think you probably do too. Uh, But when he says, I did it ignorantly ignorantly in unbelief, listen, the lost person doesn't live for Christ. The lost person doesn't live for God. They're not going to live their life in a way that pleases God. They might be good people to a degree, but their goal is not to honor Christ. And, uh, and, And that's because they don't know Christ. They're ignorant. Christians try to use the excuse, oh, I was just being ignorant. <laughs> it's not that big a deal. It's okay. No, no, that's not, we shouldn't take it lightly. We should not take sin lightly. But what Paul says here, and what God gives to us in inspiration, is he says that this blasphemer and this persecutor and this injurious man, uh, I gave him mercy because he wasn't a follower of God. He wasn't a child of God. He did it ignorantly in unbelief. When we are saved and we do these sins, not to say that God won't forgive us. God tells us in God's word that he will if we confess our sins. But you've got to understand how God is viewing it. Sins of a lost person, God is there and made available. And if they come to him, he will save them and he will forgive them. And he looks at it as they're lost They don't believe their sin is being committed, not innocently by any stretch of the imagination, but ignorantly. When we're saved, we know we're not supposed to do these things because now we live for God. God is our Father. God is our Savior. God is our King. uh, God is our authority. And yet we still make these sins, and I think that we need to understand fully that God hates sin as a whole, completely, 100%. God hates, hates, hates when Christians sin. To see a person who has understood that they need a Savior and they place their faith in the grace of God and they say, God, I am giving my life to you. I'm I'm seeking you for salvation and I will now follow you. And then they go out and commit sins. Uh, It's not to say that, again, God will forgive if they seek his forgiveness, but understand how God views it. It's no longer ignorant sin. It's knowing sin. It's doing it even though I know it's sin. And God God is greatly disappointed and displeased in that as well. But he says here, showing the love of Christ, and he's being thankful for the love of Christ. And we should be too. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Grace educated Paul. And it should educate us too. Paul changed when he was saved. And the Bible tells us we change when we're saved. We don't keep on living. We know the old old kid's song, those things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. Grace changes us. And when we're saved, things change. We put off the old and we put on the new. And now we live in light of the love of Christ. And in light of the authority of Christ. Following His commands. And in doing so... At salvation, listen, we're not perfected at salvation in the sense, and let me change my terminology, we are not uh, completely grown at salvation. We are not fully matured at salvation. We are babies when we're saved. And it's going to take time to learn. And it's going to take time to understand some things. And it's going to take time and and studying and reading and praying and, and hearing preaching in order for us to grow and mature in Christ. But salvation changes us. Paul, who had a complete 180 at his salvation, he was, went from persecuting Christians to proclaiming the gospel of Christ. The things that he hated and the things that he thought were wrong about Christians, when he got saved, he immediately started doing. And I love when we read through after Paul's salvation and we see him coming into Christians and God tells, tells someone, hey, take him and introduce him, I'm paraphrasing, take him and introduce him, let them know it's okay, he's been saved, 
everything is good because if he walks through the door and there's Christians in the room, they're going to be terrified. That's the reputation that he had. And so, and so at his salvation, he, he began to grow and he began to mature. The grace of God educated him instantly. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't there instantly, but the grace of God uh, educated him instantly. And now the things that he thought were, were crazy, he now was preaching. The things that he thought were foolishness, he now understood they were wisdom. And he went on and proclaimed those things. And so we will look at the love of Christ and we see that we should be thankful for where he's placed us now. Thankful for where he's brought us out of and thankful that he forgave us and he began to educate us through his word. We should be grateful as well for the love of Christ. Secondly, under the love of Christ, we see the, uh, the gospel purpose. The gospel, uh, its purpose is to, to proclaim what Christ did. But again, at its fullest, it's showing the love of Christ. That's what the gospel does for us. Uh, the gospel purpose, first of all, is to, to, for sinners to be saved. Uh, look in verse number 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. We see that the gospel, we saw it in verse 14, we saw it in verse 13 as well, what Paul was saved out of. Um, and the purpose of the gospel is to save sinners to save the, save the blasphemers, to save the violent, to save the ignorant, to save sinners. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. And for us to understand that that is what the gospel is meant for. To, uh, uh, it says in verse number, uh, we go back and look at last week, and we see that the law, when it's, when it's used lawfully, is good. And knowing that the law is not made, verse 9, for the righteous man, but for the lawless and the disobedient and the ungodly and for sinners and unholy and profane and murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and manslayers and whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, uh, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now we see that, that the gospel covers those people as well. The gospel is for sinners not for the righteous. It's to show the love of Christ to sinners. I still just think about the times where Christ hanging on the cross and looking out over the crowd of people uh, that were chanting just days before for him to be crucified, uh, that, were, that, that released a, a known criminal uh, in order to crucify him who had done nothing wrong. And yet the love of Christ that poured out on those people, Father, forgive them. For they're ignorant. They know not what they do. The gospel illuminates the love of Christ. It shows that it's not that the people who are lovable are loved. It's that the unlovable are loved. And it's only the love of Christ that can do that. To truly pour out love on people who do not deserve the love which is everybody, by the way. Uh, it's the people who, who, who are so unworthy of love, yet God loved still. I mean, the most popular verse in Scripture tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sinners, that's the gospel purpose. The word acceptation here is the idea of gladly receiving. This is a thought. This is a truth. This is a saying that should be gladly received. Paul here says that that saying that uh, uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, chiefest. But that phrase that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners should be gladly received by me personally because that means Christ came for me. It should be gladly received by anyone who hears the message because Christ came for them. The fact that, uh, that Paul, who considered himself the chiefest of sinners, could be saved, he's saying, does it not prove that God can save anyone? If God can save me, he can save anyone. 
Now, few of us are humble enough to admit that. Most of us look around and think, I'm not that bad. Yes, I needed to be saved, but I'm not that bad. I had a friend in college uh, who still to this day uh, has a, a ministry of his own, he does on his own time, uh, writing uh, people on death row. And he sends a letter out and uh, with the gospel in it, and he starts by just trying to be friendly, um, sends a letter, and then and in most cases the people will write back to him. He has interacted with the most famous serial killers. Uh, I hate to use that word, uh, but the most famous um, he has interacted with them. He shared the gospel with them. He has uh, received letters where people on death row have received Christ as their Savior through his gospel witness. And he realized that even though we would look at those people and say, man, they're the worst, the love of Christ still covers them. And a lot of times we won't if you're anything like me, at least, you think, man, those people deserve everything they get. And I would argue earthly mindset would agree, yeah, man, they're the worst kind of people and they deserve the worst kind of punishment, an eternal punishment. But if I humble myself a little bit, I realize, man, I, I deserve that too. God loved me. And I should gladly receive this thought and this saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a good thing. Because if he didn't, well, I wouldn't be saved. And you wouldn't be saved. We see that the gospel purpose is to see sinners saved and it should be gladly received. But we see in verse 16 the patience of God shown. Which, which again proves the love of Christ. He says in verse 16, Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, for a pattern to them which would hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Again, Paul, Paul sits here and he says, God was patient with me. Paul was out there arresting, uh, beating Christians. God's people. And God could have struck them down just like that. But we read that when God struck down Saul, Paul, it wasn't in death. But God appeared unto him and he said, you need to be saved. And Paul says, God was patient. And his patience with me can now be seen by anyone who comes after me. And you can understand that God is patient. Salvation of sinners shows not only the love of Christ, but the patience of Christ. How much God puts up with in this world because He loves and because He desires for people to be saved. Jump down to chapter 2. And verse number four, verse number three, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is for people to be saved. But salvation, even though it's offered, still has to be received. Did you know that in America... Um, even if someone is pardoned by the president, they still have to actually accept the pardon. I didn't know this. Just because the president pardons or the governor pardons people doesn't mean they automatically walk out of prison. They actually have to accept the pardon. Uh, this is a result of something that happened in 1830. Uh, George Wilson was sentenced to death in Pennsylvania for armed robbery of the U.S. mail. I'm not sure, it didn't say anywhere that he actually killed anybody, so I'm not truly understanding of what's going on here. But nonetheless, he was sentenced to death. And uh, Andrew Jackson pardoned him. But George Wilson refused to accept the pardon. So his lawyers went to the court and said, well, you can't, 
you can't put him to death. He's been pardoned. And the case went up to the United States Supreme Court, and here was their decision. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential, and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected if the person to whom uh, it, it is tendered. And if be, it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. It may be supposed that no being condemned to death would reject the pardon, but the rule must be the same in capital cases and in misdemeanors. Why would anybody reject a pardon? Why would anybody be told, you can be free? You don't have to suffer the ultimate consequence. Why would anybody reject that? I've always imagined that if someone uh, is, is sentenced in any way and receives a pardon, I assumed it took them less than a second to get out. Like, boom, I'm gone. And I'm sure there are very few, if any other people, like George Wilson, who said, eh, no, I don't want it. And it got me thinking about the gospel, the love of Christ. And we see throughout Scripture, and we see in current situations and circumstances, thousands, if not millions of people who have been offered a pardon and rejected. The Bible says, and God loved the world and gave his only begotten son. The Bible says that God's desire is that all men would be saved. Yet, when we get to heaven, it's not going to be crowded. There are people who have a knowledge of who God is, but have never received the gift that God offered. Knowing who God is is not enough. The Bible says even the devils know who God is. And the reality is, is, is our job to share the love of Christ and to share the gospel and the purpose of the gospel is to see people saved. And Paul here is saying, I'm, I'm the ultimate example that God offered to me a pardon and he offers it to you. Well, will you accept it? And Paul says, oh my goodness, he's willing to save me. I guarantee he's willing to save you. And I've talked about it before. As a pastor, I've been told many a times, oh, you don't understand, preacher. If I walk through your doors, the whole building will collapse. And I say, huh, you haven't met Miss Kathy. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's not going to collapse. At least not because of you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Now, it matters to me as a parent. It matters to me as a pastor. Sure, I want us to be safe. I get all that. I understand all that. But listen to me. God does not look down on this world and see a person and say, I don't love you. God does not look down on this world and see a person who say, and he says, I desire that you burn in hell for eternity. God's desire is that men would be saved. But the reality is, if you reject God, God doesn't say, ah, I love you, so even though you rejected me, it's not how it works. God's offered. He's paid the price. He gave the gift. Yet many will reject The love of Christ, it is sufficient. The grace of God, it is sufficient. And whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And whosoever doesn't will not. I think we're going to be surprised. I don't know how much, I guess I should be careful with this, but I, I, don't, I don't know how much it will hit us and maybe it won't at all because we'll be in awe of God. But I think that there are people 
who we assume we'll see in heaven that we won't. I think there are people who we assume will be in hell who we'll see in heaven. But the reality is, is the purpose of the gospel is that people would be saved. Paul, he says, as an example, God can use me as an example, as a pattern for his patience and his love. If he would save me, he will save you. The difference between Paul and every person in hell and every person that will be in hell is that Paul understood he needed Christ. And the only way he could have Christ is because Christ loved him and Christ offered the pardon. And Paul understood that and he accepted it. Paul is no better person than you or I in the grand scheme of things. Has he done more for Christ than you or I? Maybe. He is no better person. He is no more worthy of heaven than you or I. And that's what he says here is I can be used as an example for people who come after me to understand, boy, my life was wicked. But God saved me. He could save you too. And I think sometimes the way that we miss the boat with the gospel is we try to tell people that you can be as good as me. Instead of helping people see that you can be saved out of your sin the same way that I was saved out of mine. It's not about me. It's about God. The gospel purpose is about God and showing how much God loves you. We see a little bit more information given about God here in verse number 17. He says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says God's unchanging. He doesn't change the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a good thing. God is unbeatable. Satan cannot win, will not prevail. He's unbeatable. He's unseen. He's invisible. Uh, it shows us again the times, there have been very few times throughout history where God made himself visible for people to see. And we see it throughout scripture, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, of course, in the life of Christ. Uh, but, but very rarely, and to understand the power of God and the uh, uh, aweness of God, the amazingness of God, and who he is and what is represented in him. He's the only one with wisdom. The only one with complete and full wisdom. He is worthy of glory. He's an amazing God. But we see in order for the church to be effective, not only do we need to mirror and show and understand the love of Christ, but we do need to live a life of faith. In order for us to be effective, we need to live a life of faith. Uh, we understand that it is faith is needed for us to be effective. And look at the charge given here in verse number 18. Now Paul giving it to Timothy, but understanding that God gives it to us by inspiration. Uh, Paul here uh, it says, The charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, uh, that thou um, by them mightest war a good warfare. We see a personal uh, charge, a handing down to the next generation. Can't hand down something that we don't have. Paul, as, as imperfect as Paul was, Paul truly is a great example in many, many ways. And the life that he lived after he was saved, uh, one of boldness, one of faithfulness, one of activity, uh, one that, that, that not only taught, uh, excuse me, not only preached, but also taught and trained other people. We see his love for individuals. We see his love for churches. We see his love for God, of course. And so he's passing on something to Timothy, something that we should be passing on to the people who come behind us. A life of faith. He's telling Timothy, you need to live a life of faith. But I'll tell you what, that charge is null and void to Timothy if Paul didn't exemplify it. 
Have you ever been told by someone to do something or corrected on something that you know they've done wrong to? It's one of the most annoying things in the workplace. When the lazy supervisor comes over and says, you need to work harder. Oh, that, that'll get you going. When the person who sits in the office all day comes out and says, you're going too slow. When the person who's rude to someone tells you you need to be nicer. <laughs> when the person who's ugly tells you to be prettier. That doesn't make any sense. Timothy here was receiving a command and, and a charge from Paul, and it was one that Timothy could look at Paul and say, hey, Paul lived a life of faith. And now he's telling me I need to live a life of faith. And it means more coming from someone who's exemplified it. Who told Paul to live a life of faith? God did. <laughs> did, did God exemplify a life of faith? He did. When Christ lived on this earth and walked a life of humility and did his father's bidding, and Paul passing this on to Timothy and us, uh, God giving it to us, and we are supposed to not only live the life of faith, but charge others to do the same. The Bible teaching us before, the things that we've seen before, the things that we know are coming should challenge us to live a life of faith so that we can war a good warfare. We're in the war whether or not we like it. You say, well, I'm of the philosophy, love, not war. Well, if you love God, you're in a war. You may not like it, but you're there. Will you war a good warfare? If you don't have a life of faith, you sure won't. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, same terminology that we saw earlier in chapter 1, uh, uh, having, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. There have been some who have not done this, some who have fallen aside, some who have uh, fallen off, those who have backslid. So hold on to that faith and a good conscience. Live a life that is pure, that is, that is uh, right with God, one that you can go to sleep at night knowing that your relationship with God is where it's supposed to be. And some have not, and he says there in verse number 20, of, of whom, and he names people, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now listen, how would you like that? If you've been called out by name in front of a group of people, it's, 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 it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And he calls out to, to Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's very similar uh, different purpose, but very similar to what we read about in Job. Where Satan was allowed to afflict Job. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they lived a life, and, and, and unlike Job, it was not a just life. It was not a pure life. They had slid, they had backslid. And they'd been delivered to Satan. They did not lose their salvation, I don't believe. I don't think that's what this is teaching but they were going to be afflicted so that they can learn not to blaspheme. I don't know about you, but I have spent my entire life trying to avoid discipline. Um, my childhood, uh, especially my early childhood, was uh, well known that the discipline of choice was going to be spankings. And I did not like that. And so I did as much as I could to avoid that. Most of the time that meant I was good. But when I was bad, I tried to talk my way out. I tried to come up with better ideas for my parents. You know, what might work better? <laughs> you know, I didn't want that spanking. I tried everything I could to avoid it. Same is true nowadays. Anybody that's in authority, I try my hardest to avoid discipline. 
to not put myself in a situation where I'm going to have to be disciplined. I'll tell you a, a little secret about me. Last night, I told somebody already, but last night I was driving home, coming down the interstate. I was going a little quicker than what the sign said uh, through Georgetown and construction going on in the interstate. And I was cruising along. It wasn't a crazy speed, but it was still, it was actually under the original speed limit, but higher than the current speed limit. And uh, as I'm driving, all of a sudden, I see two SUVs on the side of the road. So what do I do? Now, I'm smart enough not to slam on the brakes, but I sure let off the gas. And I just remember sitting there going, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, looking in the mirror. And apparently, they were having donuts, and they didn't care to chase me. And so it worked out okay for me that time. But when I see cop cars, even if I'm going the speed limit, when I see cop cars, I don't speed up. No one does, right? You could be cruising along. Let's say the, uh, let's say the speed limit is 65. That's more a Tennessee speed limit than a Kentucky speed limit. Let's say it's uh, a 55. And you're cruising down, going the speed limit, 55, and you see a cop car, what happens? 99% of us slow down, even though we're going the speed limit. Cop, slow down. That's what I hate because you'll be driving and cars, three cars in front of you, slow down. And you're like, you're going the speed limit, man. Keep it rolling. But the reality is I do the same thing because we want to avoid discipline at all costs. Well, I'll tell you what. A speeding ticket or a spanking doesn't seem so bad when it's put that these people have been delivered unto Satan that they learn not to blaspheme. How humiliating would it be if you were called out by name because you had blasphemed, it wouldn't sit well. As a matter of fact, in today's church, if someone was called out by name because they blasphemed, they'd probably get up and walk out and never come back. But what was the purpose of the hardship and affliction that Hymenius and Alexander were about to go through? Was it because God hated them? No. Was it because Paul hated them? No. It's because Christ loved them. And whom he loves, he chastens. And I truly believe the desire here was for restoration. They need to learn so that they stop, so that the church can be effective again. I'm not going to call anybody out by name. (laughs) Are you living a life of faith? Are you exemplifying the love of Christ? In order for us to have an effective church, we, me included, have to do these things. We have a relationship with God. Now we have to exemplify it. The love of Christ is something we should be thankful for. and something we should be sharing with other people. And if we live a life of faith, we live a life that is an example to those who come behind us. And if we don't live a life of faith, we're at risk. And I think risk is probably too light of a word of being disciplined by God. So many Christians, and not every hardship is a a punishment. I don't want to come across as someone who says that. Not every hardship is a punishment from God. But I've met so many Christians who will come and just gripe about the hardships in their life. Everything's so hard. I'm just going through it. It just seems like one thing after another, after another, and after another, and after another. And I just don't understand it. And as a pastor, I know they don't want to hear it. I say, well, you haven't been in church in a month. Well, that's because we're going through all this. Where does God want you to be? What have you been reading in your Bible? I don't have time. The further away we are from God, the the further away we are from His protection. And again, there are times where God will use hardships to stretch our faith and to grow us, and it's not a result of a discipline or a punishment to us. Job was that way. 
But so often a Christian, their hardships are even harder because they aren't living a life of faith. And a church cannot be effective if the people who make up the church aren't living a life of faith. I know we're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. You know I'm not perfect. I know you're not perfect. All right, we're all in the same boat. Are we living a life of faith? And are we showing the love of Christ? Those two things, partnered with the things we talked about last week, with the things that we're going to talk about next week, can make us and help us be an effective church. So consider the love of Christ and consider your life. Is it one that is a life of faith? Lord, I pray for your help this morning. I believe we all have a desire for our church to be one that is effective. I believe we would all love to see people being saved and then baptized and added to the church. Ministries growing. Uh, more volunteers and servants to, to fill and, and, and take, take on roles within the church. But Lord, I pray that we would all look at ourselves and seek you and ask you, Lord, search me. Examine me. Am I what I'm supposed to be? Am I the kind of person living the life that I'm supposed to be living so that you can use me to be an effective part of the church you've placed me in. And if not, well, this morning I pray that we'd go to God and we'd hand it over to Him. We say, God, I know that you love me. I know you want to use me. So God, forgive me. Help me to get back on track. and Help me to stay on track, living a life of faith, showing forth the love of God. Lord, this morning, impact our lives, impact our church. I pray in Jesus' name.